For the last few months, we've been in a series we've called The Quotable Jesus. And what we've done is look at the words, uh, 2,000 year old words of Jesus that have shaped the moral imaginations of people around the globe. From the golden rule to loving our enemies to reminding us not to worry, his words have provided clarity, healing, and hope to millions. And that's why Jesus is the most quoted figure in history. Along the way, we've looked at 15 of the most memorable sayings of Jesus. And today we're ending with the final words that he said just before he ascended into heaven. This is the only quote that we're going to look at that is not in one of the first of the four biographies of Jesus we have in the New Testament. Luke, who is uh, one of the biographers, also wrote a second book in the New Testament. We call it Acts or Acts of the Apostles. And um, it's in that book that we find this quote. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Luke. He's an interesting guy. He was a physician. He uh, lived in the Greek city of Antioch in ancient Syria. Many scholars believe that he was a Greek by uh, ethnicity, but among the first Gentile converts to Christianity. So he's someone who deeply was committed to Jesus. He was not only a physician, but he was also an historian. And about 30 or so years after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the early eyewitnesses began to die off. And so these biographies that we have in the New Testament were written down. At that point, no one could talk to somebody who'd actually seen him, or at least very few of them. And so these biographies began to be written. Luke is one of those, but he didn't stop there because a few years later, he wrote a second book, this time a history of the early Christian church. And we're really indebted to him because otherwise we wouldn't know a lot about that period of time. Here's the way he began that book, just so you get a full flavor for his objective and his purpose. He said in my former book, that's the biography of, of uh, Jesus that we call Luke, he said in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. Then he says this, verse 3, after his suffering, that's after Jesus' death, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, there's something important I don't want us to overlook, and that is what he said. He said he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. What Luke is saying here is that Jesus provided his followers with what they needed to understand that he was really alive. Now, you may have heard, and we said this, I think, on Easter Sunday, that there are some who say, well, you know, Jesus' disciples, this was a little bit of wishful thinking. They just hoped that maybe Jesus was alive. Maybe they hallucinated. Maybe they had these visions that were kind of like a ghost. Um, but that's not what the earliest disciples believed because Jesus convinced them that he was really alive. It's absolutely necessary because later, as St. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So this was important and Jesus communicated it um, clearly demonstrated it in about a 40-day period. This is significant because Jesus' closest followers soon went from hiding in fear to speaking out boldly and telling others what they had seen and all about Jesus. They then spent the rest of their lives taking his message of repentance and forgiveness to much of the known world. Now, it's in this book, in Acts chapter 1, that Luke gives us the last quote in our series, and it's in verse 8. When Jesus says this just before he ascends into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when his, the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now the word witnesses here describes someone who makes a statement about what he or she has seen or heard or knows about on a subject or something 
like that. It's often used then and as it's used now to describe someone making a statement in a court of law. And the assumption is that they've either seen something or know something that others either want to know or ought to know. Now, we do this in all sorts of ways. We witness or we tell others about something, sometimes in big and even in small ways. For example, I love to read, so when I read a good book, I tell everyone I know about it. So a few weeks ago, I finished a book called Beneath the Scarlet Sky. It's a historical novel based on the Nazi occupation of Italy during World War II. Um, after I finished, my youngest daughter read it. My wife just finished it yesterday. Our oldest daughter's ready to get her hands on the book. And keeping with the World War II theme, a couple of weeks ago, I finally watched the movie Darkest Hour, for which Gary Oldham won a, an Academy Award. Um, this is a film about Winston Churchill in the early days of World War II. If you love history, you will love it. Now, I could go on and on and tell you about new music I'm listening to or a restaurant we just discovered or a new podcast I've been listening to. Whatever we hear about, when we find something we like, something that meets a need, something that helps us solve a persistent problem, we tell everyone we know about it. Essentially, we're witnesses, and it's natural. Anything we're enthusiastic about, we want to share with others. And that's exactly what the first followers of Jesus were like. And Jesus nudged them in that direction. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, that little list of places may confuse you. Um, Jesus mentions here Judea, Samaria, uh, and the ends of the earth. What's going on? Well, literally, what he's doing is calling to mind a map of the known world, the ancient world. And he's starting with the city that they're in, that's Jerusalem. Then he's pointing out the area, the surrounding area, the region that they live in. You might call it like a state. That's called Judea. And then another area a little bit further away, that's called Samaria. That's the place where what Jews considered kind of half-Jews or outcast Jews lived. And then everywhere else. And what he's talking about is concentric circles of how this spreads. Now, let me just give you another way to think about what Jesus is getting at. Some of you have read Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the first of those habits is be proactive. And in that chapter, Covey draws a diagram. He describes how in certain areas of life we have influence. But there are other places beyond that around which we have concern. We can't influence them, and we get frustrated sometimes. And so he says, by being proactive, we can sometimes expand that circle of influence to, into our area of concern. In a sense, that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to do, starting with those who were closest to them, those living in Jerusalem, and then reaching out in ever-widening circles to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to all those who'd not yet heard about Jesus. Now, we have our own way of talking about that here at City Church. We say that our goal is to reach others with God's love here, near, and far. In other words, we want to start with those who are nearest to us and go from there. That's why when we introduced our forecast vision a year ago, we talked about one of the values was invite, inviting others into a relationship with Jesus. And we also talked about serving, serving others sacrificially in word and deed. So doing that here, near, and far in ever-expanding circles of influence. Now, what I've just said about this whole idea of witnesses may make some of you anxious, either because you're a Christ follower who doesn't feel comfortable pushing your faith on others, or because you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You may be exploring Christian faith, but you're not really comfortable about somebody else pushing their faith on you either. And it can make you anxious. And, and I'm with you. I don't like the idea of people pushing things on others, and I don't like to push things on people as well. And maybe in the past you've run into somebody like that and you were offended. And I get it. It can feel really transactional. 
like one of those state fair types trying to sell you a knife or a juicer or a magic mop. You don't really want that to happen. Now, if along the way you've had an experience like that, I'm sorry, because that's not the way that Jesus wanted his witnesses to tell others about him. Yes, he wanted people to tell others about the good news of, of him. But he also wanted his, and he wanted them to do it boldly, but he also wanted them to do it respectfully. Peter is the first of Jesus' disciples to give a public sermon, and it was a dramatic experience. 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus with that first sermon in Jerusalem. But years later, Peter wrote about, um, what, about being a witness this way in 1 Peter 3.15. He said, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So he's saying, be prepared with an explanation of what it is you believe, but make sure you do so with gentleness and respect. And that's not to say that Peter and the others were passive. They believed that faith is the central organizing principle of life. They believed that we all need answers to life's fundamental questions, questions about everything from who God is to the meaning and purpose of life. They believed and they sincerely believed that in Jesus they'd found truth. They believed it would be unloving not to share that with others, but they knew how to do it respectfully. An acquaintance of mine once shared uh, an idea, kind of a metaphor that I've found helpful over the years. Um, we shouldn't, as some have suggested, at least in the past, be what he called sales reps for Jesus. This is people who try to close the deal as quickly as possible by de uh, delivering a canned speech to people they barely know. It's uncomfortable, it's ineffective, and frankly, unbiblical. So instead, he said, we ought to be travel guides, walking alongside others and asking questions, listening, and waiting for the Holy Spirit to provide an opportunity to share what it is that we know about Jesus. That approach is both comfortable and effective. Now, let me just say, I, I worried about this in the first service, so I'm going to worry about it here too, that some of you are in sales and you're feeling like I've just dissed you. Um, I have met a lot of sales professionals in my life, and they actually get this. This is the way they do it. They don't push things on people that they don't want to hear. They are people who do it with gentleness and respect. So it works, and it's what Jesus wants us to do. Be gracious, never arrogant, condescending, or rude. Now, now we get to the message that Jesus wanted them to convey. A couple of weeks ago, I put a card in, the, in your programs, and I put it in there again today. That time, I talked about this idea of a journey, that we're all on a journey toward God, and the only question is, where are we along this, this path? This time, I want to talk about what's on the back of the card, which is an explanation of the core message of the Bible. And the message goes like this, that first of all, we were created in love. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, which says that God created the world and it was very good. In addition to that, um, he created us in his image. And that's wonderful news. What that tells us is that each one of us as human beings have been created with great dignity. But there is some bad news, and that is that we've been damaged by evil. Paul put it this way. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's not just affected our lives, but it's affected all of creation. So everything around us has been damaged to some degree by the effects of sin and brokenness in our world. And if you don't believe me, just read the newspaper, watch the news, or more importantly, look at our own hearts and see the places where we're rebellious as well. Now, the really great news, though, is that we were not left in that position. God did not abandon us. In fact, we've been rescued by God. Paul tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't. He died the death that we deserved and rose again to give us new life. Now, the final chapter in this is that we've been restored for good. In other words, God has done more than rescue us, but he wants us to help fix what's broken. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But the question for each of us with this message that Jesus brought is what are we going to do with it? And what the Bible tells us is that we each have a choice to make. God's reached out to us in love, but he's also given us freedom. We need to each accept the gift that he offers. That opportunity comes, but sometimes it may not come back. This is a decision that should not be made lightly. So let me just tell you that even right now, if you have questions, if you're not sure about all of this, seek answers. Engage one of us, talk to one of us, or do it wherever you can, but don't procrastinate. It may well be, though, that you also have enough answers. God may have been getting your attention for a long time. So don't put him off. Skepticism that doesn't honestly seek answers is really just laziness. That's why if you've not yet said yes to Jesus, but sense that you're ready, go ahead and respond. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In this way, what we do is receive the invitation that Jesus has offered to each one of us and experience God's amazing grace. Now, all of that raises a question that taps into a debate that has been around really since probably the beginning when Jesus uh, was even alive. And that is, it's a, a question that surfaces from time to time about whether or not we ought to be focused on faith or actions or both. Let me just say here, first of all, that some try to reduce Jesus' message exclusively to words. That all you need to do, they say, is verbally tell others the good news of salvation. Now, that step of faith is essential to what it is to be a Christian. We need to personally, individually respond to Jesus and say yes to him. But it's also true that we need to live that out. That's why when I summarized the good news a moment ago, I said that we are also restored for good. In other words, faith that isn't lived out is not true faith. One example of this in the New Testament is James, Jesus' brother, um, wrote, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. And Peter, again, one of those early disciples, the one who gave that first sermon, also said this in 1 Peter 2.12, Live such good lives among the pagans. By the way, that has a pejorative term for us today. He was just really talking about those around them that didn't believe. Um, he's saying that those around you, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So the idea here is that we have a message to share and a faith to live out. A message to share and a faith to live out. But sometimes people want to pit these two against each other. They'll either focus exclusively on the words of Jesus, and others will almost flip to the other extreme and say things like, words are only occasionally necessary. The important thing is to live out our faith with good deeds. That group will often quote St. Francis, um, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Except that St. Francis never said it, and it's unbalanced. Jesus taught that both words and actions are necessary. Here's one of the ways that it's summarized by one of the writers of the New Testament, St. Paul. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, he says this. He first talks about the message that we're to understand and respond to and embrace. He says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then he adds this. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So respond in faith 
and then out of gratitude, live out your faith with good deeds, with actions. I was talking to someone last week about the connection between these two, between words and deeds, and he mentioned that sometimes he's heard people say, you know what, the reason we do the good things we do is to make sure that others uh, will have a chance, so that we'll have a chance to win the right to be heard. In other words, to uh, get an opportunity to share with them about Christ. In other words, what we do is sort of a utilitarian thing to persuade people to listen to us, to what we have to say. And my friend said, that doesn't seem quite right. He said, don't we do good as an act of love for others, whether they want to hear what we have to say or not? And I agree. The good we do in loving our neighbors, seeing our communities flourish, may possibly give us the opportunity to share God's love with others. But even if it doesn't, we're to do that good anyway. The question then comes sort of, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? And it's really both. We share about Jesus with our words, and we love others in the name of Jesus with our actions. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we at City Church here believe, we really believe, that everyone who's far from God would be better off if they had Jesus at the center of their lives. We're committed to extending the invitation that Jesus offers to us, to others. We believe that all who have a relationship with Jesus will find peace and meaning and purpose. They'll have guidance and strength to face difficulties and hope for eternity that they do not currently have. And to do this, they simply need to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, I also know that many, maybe some of you, have not heard that message. Maybe you've been turned off by others who've tried to push Jesus on you. Or maybe you've heard people who've mixed the message of Jesus up with, say, materialism or politics or judgmental attitudes. Now, if that describes some of you, it's not Jesus you really have a problem with. It's some of his followers. And I'm sorry. Sorry that you've experienced something that Jesus would never endorse. The only way you and others may hear what Jesus has to say is that if his followers serve, him, serve others sacrificially, doing ordinary things with great love, living generously in a world by giving of time and skills and money so that the world around us can flourish. What Jesus did when he lived here on earth was preach the good news in word and deed. He told us to love God and love our neighbors. And by the way, he defined neighbors so broadly that it included even our enemies. He described a kingdom of righteousness, just so you know that Jesus isn't soft on sin, and also of justice, so that you know he cares deeply about the little and the least and the lost. And he told us to work and pray that his will might be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So we need to tell about others about Jesus, and we need to start NGOs. What I want to do today, though, is finish with two stories, one that illustrates one aspect of witness, the witness of word, and the other that of deed. The first is a story I stumbled across um, earlier this, or I guess or late last year. Our oldest daughter was thinking about joining the Peace Corps, so my radar was up about stories about young adults um, who uh, had done that. So I read this story about Peter. Peter joined the Peace Corps just after graduating from NYU. He, he did so in part because he felt, he said, destined for heroism. Uh, he ended up in Paraguay um, with a mission of teaching beekeeping to subsistence farmers. The only problem was the subsistence farmers didn't really have much interest in beekeeping, except for one guy named Felix. Now, he said their first attempts at establishing a hive were fiascos, but eventually they got things started, and over the next several months, the two of them spent hours and hours together. Their conversation ranged from the daily minutiae to their dreams, fears, loves, and hopes. He said, Felix started asking me a lot of questions. You know, why don't you find a girlfriend? And he said to Felix, that's complicated. 
And then he um, said, do you believe in God? Peter said, that's complicated too. About once a month, Peter would make his journey, a four-hour bus ride to the local uh, uh, nearest large town to collect his paycheck and to stock up on supplies. And while he's there, he'd hang out a little bit with a guy named Brad, who was an American missionary. Um, he said Brad had a storehouse of American food, so while he wasn't crazy about all the religious talk that Brad had, he liked Frosted Flakes and peanut butter, so he hung out with him. One, one of his trips for supplies, uh, Peter picked up a book that Brad had, and he was bored. There was no television in his hotel room, so he read the book that night, and he started, and he actually finished it all in one sitting. And it was uh, an author who talked about God in a way that Peter had never heard before. Rather than a distant, authoritative figure, the author said that the God of the Bible is a person, and you can have a relationship with him. He'd never heard the idea before, and in the weeks that followed, he couldn't quite get it out of his head. He started reading the Bible, and he read it from beginning to end. And he kept talking to his friend Felix. The two men were similar in age, although Felix had four children and Peter was a single guy. But as they started in conversation, Peter shared with Felix what he was learning and experiencing. And Felix asked Peter if he'd ever prayed. Peter said no. And then Felix began to tell Peter how he prayed. He said, I just talk to God the same way I talk to anyone else. And sometimes he talks back. Now, that freaked Peter out, but he also recognized this deep hunger and longing that he had for a relationship with God. It was around that time that he suddenly realized, I think I'm a Christian, almost without knowing it. Now, that's just one example of the way that the message of Jesus is shared verbally with words to those here, near, and far. Sometimes the way that it happens, though, is through living it out in some tangible way, an act of love done in the name of Jesus. About 10 years ago, I was reading another story, this time in a newspaper. This was back when I actually took a newspaper rather than read it on my phone. Um, and the reporter that was writing it had been traveling and reporting from the country of Mozambique. And while he was there, he had visited a small town that had been built, a village actually, that had been built on the edge of a garbage dump in the, in the capital city of Mozambique. One day while he was there, he came across a 17-year-old named Sonia who was pregnant. She was just about uh, nine months pregnant, about to give birth to her first child. And uh, he wasn't, didn't happen to be in the village the day that she went into labor, but after four days of hard labor, she was about to become a statistic, one more mother to die of child, in childbirth. Except that about the time she was at that crisis point, a 23-year-old American missionary named Katrine happened to drop by, and when she saw Sonia... She immediately engaged a taxi, she rushed her to the hospital, and she paid the $4 it took for her to have a cesarean. She saved both mother and baby. Sonia, the new mom, as the reporter said, didn't attend church, but Katrine didn't care. She believed it was the right thing to do. Plus, the reporter speculated that she probably told Sonia about Jesus later. At the end of the article, the reporter was just about to head back to the airport to get on a plane to come back to the United States, but he made one more visit to that village, and he looked for Sonia. And what he saw was a smiling new mom cradling a lovely baby girl, not surprisingly named Katrine. In word and deed, we're to seek to live out the last thing that Jesus said during his time here on earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, in the person of Jesus, we have hope, we have healing, 
we have peace. And Father, help us to be uh, bold enough to tell others the message of Jesus, to do so respectfully, but also to be willing to talk and also to live it out, to live out our faith in deeds of good toward others in the name and the love of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities to share what it is that you have given us, that hope that uh, is beyond description. We pray this in Jesus' name.